think about perfectly organized, accessible, huge amounts of data. Look, think, think about having everything that was available in the last 50 years, all the research, all the materials. Just imagine there's a database, you can go in, you can get whatever you want. Well, if we can do that in 50 years, that's going to be so awesome for science. We can do so much cool things, right? If we would have that level of organization. It's not easy. It will be a challenge to organize all this data. But making it available like that is going to be amazing. Welcome to Everything Hurts, a podcast that covers everywhere the life sciences meets the biological sciences. My name is Dan Quintana and I'm from the University of Oslo and I'm joined by James Heathers from Northeastern University. And for part two with a special guest, Daniel Larkins, Associate Professor at Eindhoven University of Technology and the creator of the 100% free Coursera course, Improving Your Statistical Inferences. Thanks for, you've stuck around for a second episode, Daniel. Yes, yes. Oh, by the way, I have to I have to correct what you just said because I'm not even an associate professor. You know this? I'm an assistant professor. Really? Somebody somebody assistant put it on professor. Coursera and that counts like uh, correcting. But now now I was afraid to say it last time because James in one episode said if you correct this stuff, you sound like a annoying bastard, right? Something. Uh, yeah, yeah. You made that <laughs> I comment. I don't so. think I don't think I would have used that specific language. <laughs> But this, but this, this topic is important, right? This, this, uh, I, I stuck around because actually both of you sent me uh, messages on uh, social media. So uh, Dan, James sent me a message saying that you should really qu quit with this uh, meta analysis stuff because it's so horrible. <laughs> and uh, James, James, uh, Dan sent me a message saying that if you don't stop uh, bullying him about meta analysis, he's going to quit the podcast. So I think we really uh. need to d resolve this. That's some good. Absolutely. That's some good fake. Oh man, you could get a job in the Trump administration playing both sides <laughs> off against each other. That was absolutely primo. Well, we we have had a lot of discussions about that meta analysis. Um, <laughs> I think that was we we actually spoke about this a little bit in our in our I don't know third or fourth episode. Mm. But now that we have uh, Daniel on the show, I think it will, it will be a good chance to to cover that. Uh, so that's what we're going to look at today. Um, if 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 you're absolutely brand new to the podcast and this is your first episode, what are you doing? Go back and, uh, and binge <laughs> and have a, have a listen to the old ones, uh, particularly the one that we just did previously, which is looking at frequentist versus Bayesian inferences with Daniel as well. But, um, but today we are, we are talking uh, meta-analysis. And uh, Daniel, I just wanted to get your perspective. What, what do you, how do you see the current state of meta-analysis within the psychological sciences? So I've been working on this topic a little bit in the last couple of uh, months, actually, for a project we're doing, looking uh, at the current state of meta-analysis. And uh, we got really depressed while we were doing this. We're trying to reproduce meta-analyses that were published, and uh, it's impossible. It's really impossible. And then if you try, you see all sorts of mistakes and errors. And I don't know. I, I think there's a huge room for improvement. How were you trying to reproduce them? Were you going by the effect sizes that were presented in the actual papers or were you going back into the papers that they were referencing? Yes, no, no. We, we started from the paper itself, but there you already had the problem. So, you know, these nice guidelines. I'm a big fan of guidelines. Um, people should uh, should definitely read read more of them and apply more of them. Um, so there are guidelines saying that you should report all the effect sizes you've included in your meta-analysis 
in a nice table. But people don't. So the moment, the moment that you start trying to figure out what they're doing and you don't even have a table like that, ah, there's no beginning. Then when there is a table, sometimes it's better because, yeah, it's okay. And sometimes you can actually see what they've done and then it becomes even worse. I think uh, a big help is some software packages um, automatically when they present the, um, the forest plots, they also have the confidence intervals, the measure of effect size, um, all presented there. So it's actually quite easy. If you're using RevMan, um, it's all there by default. Um, if you're using Metaphor, an R package, um, gen- generally speaking, it's there by default. And it makes it incredibly easy. Um, I-, I remember I actually saw, um, but that, that's, that's sort of one part of it. Because then you can see how these um, authors did the analysis. But I think another issue around this is how do they actually extract the data from the papers themselves? I saw one paper, uh, I think about two years ago, where the authors actually went to the trouble of screenshotting the part of the paper they took it from and highlighting the effect and putting that in the appendices. I'm like, that's brilliant. A heck of a lot of work. But at the same time, people are already doing this. Yeah, so I don't see the issue of actually... I You're think doing that's it. excellent. Take- excellent practice. That's not crazy at all. That's not crazy at all. I think that's. I've seen that good. once ever. Mm. Well, some some newer techniques. So you have uh, traditional uh, meta analysis of effect sizes, but you can think of p curve analysis. Have you heard of p curve analysis? Oh yeah. So p-curve analysis is also a meta analytic technique, but it doesn't use the effect sizes, but the p values, and it's developed by Yuri Simonson and colleagues. And uh, they present the data in what they call a P-curve disclosure table. And if you look at this, this it's just a spreadsheet with all the information. They already copy-paste every test that they use or all the information they use from the paper into this table. And I think that should be the default because otherwise we try to find many of these effects. What What are you using here? And it's too difficult, too difficult to figure out what people have done. And were you targeting specific journals, or were you? Uh, how, how broad was your was your net when you were looking at these analyses? So, so this project is still sort of ongoing. Where, yeah, we have some sort of report, but it's still it's a huge amount of work, as you can figure out. So we we have some conclusions, but we're still working on it. But what we did was pick twenty meta analysis published in psychology journals, so um, Psychological Bulletin, I think, um, um, Perspectives on Psychological Science, and. Psychonomic Bulletin and Review, three journals that, you know, typically publish meta-analysis. And um, we picked 20 randomly from these, uh, from 2013 and 14. Yeah, so it was a pretty, I would say, representative sample uh, of high-quality high, high meta-analysis. Could I take a punt in saying that all of them would have said that they followed Prisma guidelines but didn't actually do it? Do you want to guess the percentage that said that they would do it? So this is psychology, uh, uh, right? You have to you have to think about psychologists. Wait a minute before uh, you answer. Think about <laughs> a psychologist. All right, go. I would say over eighty percent would have said they followed Prisma guidelines. Yes. Am I ballpark? four four percent? Four percent. Yes. Yes. So that only four percent said they followed Prisma guidelines. Yes. And the rest oh. and the rest clearly didn't. Wait, hang on. How, oh. how many papers were there? So this is tw- no. So this is actually this four percent comes from the fifty-four meta-analyses that were published in these three journals, uh, and then we randomly you selected twenty that we looked at. Oh right, okay. So this this was basically all in these three journals. These were all the meta-analyses, and then it was like four percent, 
which is crazy, right? Crazy low. That's a mess. And this is like, even some of these journals are APA journals, so American Psychological Association. They have their own guidelines, <laughs> pretty similar to Prisma, called Mars guidelines. So you would even say, well, then you use those, but no, nothing, nothing, which is That's crazy. No, Fantastic. That is absolutely crazy. Yes. The the the, the way I see it, uh, I think um, I think p hacking. Or hacking is actually far a far worse problem in meta analysis than it is within um, uh, more primary research, um, because it's so easy, and I think people find it much more much easier to actually game meta analysis because it's you, you get a result, and then you know if you're doing primary research and you get a result, and you're like, oh, what if I remove this participant? Sure, it happens, but not many people actually do it. But when it comes to meta-analysis and they see this study, oh, that's a bit of an outlier. Let's change our inclusion criteria. Bam, it's changed. I think it's a much, much bigger issue. And it's a much bigger issue because firstly, these things are cited to the heavens and people often use this for health policy as well within psychology. Look, there's this thing that shows that this treatment works because a meta-analysis said it. End of story. End of of discussion. But they're done so badly. It's just... This is exactly why we started to look at these things, because now we realize we have some problems with single studies, right? All right. So sometimes with a single study, we have p-hacking, those kind of things. But if you take this to the level of a meta-analysis, that's where things end up, right? That's the goal, to get your study included in a nice meta-analysis, and then we really figure out what's what. And there we're messing up in a maybe even bigger way than in the single studies. So, so we have to make sure that that's of the highest quality, and currently, there's no indication that it is of high quality at all. Mm. Yeah, I saw a, a I saw a quote from you from uh, that was that was posted by Chris Chambers, and it said that uh, we cannot make a bigger difference to science than fixing publication bias. Can you can you expand on that a bit? Yeah, so I really think that from from everything that we can do, right? Um, well, let's let's go back and say what publication bias is. I think people know, but you know, we have a tendency to send our working studies to a journal and try to publish them. And if we have a study that's non-significant, then we keep it in our file drawer. We don't share it. Or if we do just a tiny percentage, and if we send them to a journal, they might not be accepted. So that's an issue, and it becomes a real issue in a meta-analysis. The reason is that if you average all these studies that worked out nicely without looking at all the stuff that didn't work, then of course the meta-analysis is going to say, hey, there's a lovely effect, it works beautifully. But that's not the whole story. And we can never quantify what's really going on if we don't have access to the entire literature. Now, I think that's the goal of science, right? Quantifying things. But we cannot quantify the effect size of any research domain if we only have access to a subselection of the studies. So basically, we can't do our job. As long as there's huge publication bias, science has a real problem. So that's this statement comes from that. So if we, if we do something as a scientist, the biggest contribution we can make, in addition to doing your own research, right? You can do your own research. While you are doing this, make sure you publish everything or share everything. Because otherwise, the end result is not a quantifiable uh, data point or effect size. So I think really that's before we die, if we fix this, I'll be a really happy camper. And if we don't, I'll die a little bit sadder, honestly. <laughs> it's not an invitation to kill him, people who are listening from Australia. <laughs> not yet, not yet. Um, I have to work on this. Uh, this is so, interesting. So let me so give you... We... Sorry, go on. Well, let me give you one example of the state of, of meta-analysis as, as they were used in psychology. Um, let's start in the year one 
uh, 1 BB. So that's the year 1 before BEM. So for the people who don't read psychology journals. But that's like one year before this Daryl Ben paper came out. And, you know, shit sort of hit the fan, right? So in 2010, there's a, a meta-analysis published. Are you, are you okay? Yeah. A meta-analysis published on ego depletion. Ego mm. depletion. Which basically says that, you know, if you uh, exert a lot of cognitive resources, your muscle, a mental muscle gets depleted. And then, you know, you're sitting at home and you want to eat a big cre- uh, bag of crisps. You cannot control yourself anymore because your ego is depleted. That's the theory. Now, this was a meta-analysis that cited like hundreds and hundreds of times. What they did, they looked only at the published literature. They find 200 studies. They are basically, all of them are statistically significant. It's a miracle. And they average (laughs) over all of these studies, and they say the average effect size in this field is a Cohen's D of 0.62. That's it. No bias correction, no search for unpublished literature. That's it. And then everybody thinks, okay, so this is an extremely reliable research area. We know that this is true, and it has a pretty huge effect. Good for us. So then we move forward a little bit until four years A, B, so after BEM, when people start to think, well, maybe we want to examine bias in these meta-analysis, huh? because it can't be true that every study works, so let's try to correct for publication bias. And they come to the estimate that, hmm, the effect size, the true effect size, corrected for bias, might be zero. Okay, so people are slightly upset. And then they do what a good scientist does. They create a huge registered replication report. Everybody comes together and says, well, let's just try a new study with a huge sample size and see what happens. Well, the result is an effect size of zero. So then we have 200 studies. Wasn't it it 0.01 or something? Yeah, well, maybe it's not exactly zero, but it was not statistically different from zero. So it's, you know, it was really, there was no effect. There was no effect. And that's for one specific study, right? So it might be that different paradigms work or, you know, you can you can ask yourself if other paradigms would have shown an effect. And people are working on that question now, which is great. And, you know, we'll see what happens. But the current state is that we have 200 studies and maybe no true effect at all. So all Mm. of this must be a type 1 error. And people think it's impossible because they think, come on, how can you have 200 significant studies and no true effect? That's impossible. But it's not impossible. Because how many people do you know that study ego depletion? Well, I mean, maybe maybe you don't, but I know at least eight. I, I, I did it for my honors research. There you go. You're one of them. And I'm uh, one of them. So, so I definitely know like 80 people who do this for 10 years. Well, how many studies do you do a year? Well, I don't know, like a lab, a productive lab, maybe 10. So you can multiply 10 years times 80 people. Well, there are more. 200 people do this work times... 10 studies a year, whatever they do, you get a huge number, maybe 10,000 studies that have been done and 200 end up in the literature. So there is a real possibility that this is all just a type 1 error. So correcting for bias Mm. is hugely important. Doing a good meta-analysis, if we can do it, right? So that's now the question. Does it make any, is it any use to do these meta-analysis? Because if the literature is so biased, what will we learn? And what what would you say to someone going, well, you could just do some sensitivity analysis. You can firstly run an Eggers regression test Mm. um, to see if there's evidence of of small study bias, if we want to be precise here. Yeah, yeah. Um, And then, um, I mean, a a lot of people, I think the the next evolution, people began to recognize, okay, there's bias here. 
We did a regression test. We found it. We did trim and fill. Um, oh, look, <laughs> with, 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 with trim and fill, yeah. we have significant effects. And they're actually including these mysterious studies, which yes. may or may not exist, and using that as a, we have an effect there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so this is also an area where there's huge development in these bias correction tests, right? Because if the method is useful, if meta-analysis is a useful thing, we already know the literature is biased, right? There's death, Texas bias in the literature no no way around it so the question is can we salvage anything and this is a big question because we're asking the question can we salvage anything from all past literature right because if we do a meta-analysis and we cannot trust the result and we can also not correct for bias then what what are we going to do with this entire literature because we just don't know, right? So this is really a question we're going to start from scratch or we can use a bias detection technique that gives us a slightly reliable answer. Well, currently there's a lot of discussion. The methods you use or mentioned, sorry, not use, mentioned, trim and fill. It's known that's horribly bad, shouldn't be used. You can use it to identify bias, but again, we already know that most meta-analysis have bias. You cannot correct for bias. And that's a problem. You can detect it, that's easy. But correcting for it, well, that's a huge area of research, but it's so far, I don't know, not looking too good. So that's a very interesting sort of uh, domain. So if you do a meta-analysis in any case, you need to use state-of-the-art bias correction mechanisms, techniques. And even then the question is, yeah, yeah, how sure are we about this? So that's that's the state of the field of meta-analysis. I think it's uh, a lot of the onus should be on the actual journals themselves to actually police that they're using these uh, um, the Mars checklist or the Prisma checklist. Oh yes, because then a lot of, a lot of this stuff. Because what, one of the checklist forms is how did you how did you account for bias? In exactly, literature? exactly. And yeah. it should be done. It should be done. So, but you still see that even bias correction tests are not used. I mean, really, just using these guidelines where smart people had very sensible ideas, just that would be great. Yeah. Hopefully we'll, uh, we'll, we'll we'll get there eventually. But it, it, even when people say they use Prisma, they don't even do it all, in, anyway. <laughs> of course. <laughs> that's at least... Uh, you have a question of my... what the standard is. Yes, yes. But it's interesting to see that you have all these new sort of approaches. I like this. This is a great active uh, technique. And you could even say that what, what James is doing with Grimm and uh, Sprite, those kind of techniques, th- those are actually sort of uh, uh, meta uh, analysis techniques, right? You go over the literature and try to identify patterns or errors or those kind of things. You're reanalyzing existing studies. I think it's uh, interesting. Maybe it could even be scaled up. So now you're looking at individual studies, but there's room to scale that up to uh, lines of research, right? Across uh, researchers, maybe. I don't know, but there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. Mm. It is. Like, I think people draw the um, the distinction between meta research and meta-analysis when a meta-analysis is designed essentially to aggregate an effect size out by looking at published literature and um meta-research is just sort of more or less everything else it's uh you know so this is interesting because I've, I've had very little to say so far because um i think everyone's familiar with the the three whinges of why James thinks most meta-analyses should be set on fire, arranged into a creative pattern of ash, and then blasted with a shotgun. So you've already covered two of them. the The third one that you the the, the third one that hasn't really come up yet 
is the fact that I think a lot of them are published cynically. Is that people see them as an opportunity to provide a definitive statement of how something works that they hope will be cited. They hope that people will pay attention to them and that their special testicles in particular will become the special testicles. And that it's it's going to it's going to represent an asset for them. So and there's a lot of motivated reasoning. Sorry? Yeah, pre preferably about their own research area. That's the best case, right? If people do a meta-analysis on their own research area. My favorite yeah, yeah, one sure. is probably the one by Daryl Bem and colleagues who publish about uh, uh, psi research and uh, predicting the future. They have a, a very nice meta-analysis on this. Non not surprisingly, it shows that there is unmistakable proof undeniable proof for the presence of precognition yeah, and then uh, talking marvelous. about talking about bias if you then uh, look at the included studies in the meta-analysis like that and you look at the ones that are performed by Daryl Bem himself then almost all of these are statistically significant even though his studies have been criticized for being too good to be true you cannot find only significant results as he's done he must have a file drawer but in his own meta-analysis he didn't share his own file drawer. Well, then I think, you know, what's what's the use? Who are we trying to fool here? So Yeah, yeah. pretty much. Why even open your fucking mouth? I mean, that's that's. But really... at the same time, people people Googling precognition find a published meta-analysis on this topic and think, hey, well, that that's hugely, hugely important, right? It, it how, is how a little bit shameful. It is a little bit shameful that we got to this bit. point. Are you where sure, it are you had sure about be... the little bit? Well, it's shameful is not a user. I was about to get to the ruder part. That's fine. Um, it was coming. The, the idea that you have to tell physics to get stuffed uh, is the point where people can, 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 people can go, oh, no, no, at the point where the physical laws of the universe can piss off up the road is the exact point we're going to we're going to decide we might actually be observing bias in these things. It, it took something that was that ludicrous on first principles to have a broader, more field-wide discussion about this stuff. Something that I might add, one of my favorite papers of all time was a paper in 2008 by Ed Vull, which is called, originally called Voodoo Correlations. Now, the, the interesting the thing I thought was, uh, it was a thing of puzzlingly high correlations in social neuroscience. Basically, um, if you use a method where you go, oh, look, the amygdala is involved in a task and you treat the activity as only the individual voxels where you observe the relationship and then chuck out the rest of that pesky amygdala bullshit. So it's just a, instead of being a series of interconnected voxels, you're just doing the analysis on the voxels where it actually works. The thing that was really funny is that psychologists were going, huh, social neuroscientists are a bunch of idiots and they should have known that none of these correlations were possible. In 2008, while the exact same problem of keep the stuff that works and chuck everything out, the difference between the, the non-independent and independent decision-making loaded into their own field as a concept at a decision-making basis, completely passed them by until a guy turned up and, and, and said something about physics being bullshit. And then they went, oh, maybe, maybe the same thing's going on here. Wow. Yeah. Do, you, do you think? Because, look, this is, um, it's, it's, not, it's not like these discussions are new. I just think they've been traditionally ignored. You can probably find sure. every sort of five to ten years going back, there's some... Yeah. Uh, there's there's some meal kind of character who's who's thought heavily about this 
Yeah. Oh, what was the one well, from one, it's one like, good it's thing like now is that with, or with social media, oh. yeah. But one th- good thing is with social media, these stories reach many more people than before, and uh, oh, yeah. people also get more creative. You know, like putting the dead salmon in a scanner, those kind of things. You know, we've reached the point where people pointed out the problem in such a hugely creative way that everybody is taken notice. So that's good. I think yeah, the interesting question. Handy. The interesting question now, because this is, you know, I'm just uh, too much on uh, James' side here, uh, bashing meta-analysis, saying they're useless. Yeah, good. The really Fuck interesting em. question is, so what are we going to do about this? Because at the same time, we know that this is the only way to generate reliable knowledge. Single studies are all nice and fine, but we have to have a more cumulative view on knowledge generation. So we, we do need them, right? It's not that we can th- chuck them out and say, too bad. We do need them. Well, we could. <laughs> so I think look I, I think maybe that, that we shouldn't <laughs> so I think I think it's, there's two, yeah there's, there's, there's two perspectives here um, it, one it really depends on the field um, if, if you're in a field where you can actually quite reliably run replications then I think that is the way to go and that's going to give you more reliable results um, for instance a lot of stuff in perception but Anything where the risk to the participant is low and you can run this on a lot of first-year undergraduate psychology students, there's nothing really stopping you to actually going forward and doing that. However, that argument breaks down once you're dealing with more difficult interventions, um, uh, uh, drug administration, for instance, or working with very specific populations. It's not very straightforward to go, hey, just run a few replications. It doesn't work like that. So in, in those circumstances, we actually do need to improve meta-analysis in the way, the way that we do that. And I think one thing, um, you know, look, looking towards how single studies are done, is you've got to pre-register these things and pre-register your intentions, put your protocols online, mm-hmm. um, you know, declare your conflicts of interest as well. I mean, it's, it's pretty clear because you can see for some people that 20 of their own papers were included exactly. in their meta-analysis, but still, you need to be doing <laughs> this stuff. and. If you're doing putting your protocols online, um, you can even um, you know just just make, make make it pretty simple for what you're going to do and what your intentions are, especially with what your inclusion exclusion criteria. That's going to make a big difference. Now, a lot of people go, "Oh, but these things change." Yeah, of course, of course they change. And uh, we've got a paper under review now that um, our our uh, plan changed because we couldn't possibly anticipate what sort of studies we we're going to find in our analysis. They came along. We realized hang on a minute, we need to do a new moderator. We were just bloody explicit about that, going, we actually deviated from our protocol. That's the way it is, you know. That's the way it is. Um, but people, people think that's not allowed when you pre-register something. But that, that's possible. That's mental. That's possible. But it's also possible, and it happens. I already know that in many of the pre-registrations people are doing in psychology, if you publish, uh, if you pre-register your ID and you come, you, you know, you discover something, you're like, oh, wait, but... That's how science works. But you can go back to the editors. You can say, hey, we discovered this at this specific time. We're thinking maybe we need it. Change it a little bit. Right? Mm. You can have contact with, in this case, the editor, for example, in a registered report. And maybe the, the, the editor will say, well, let's ask the reviewers again. The reviewer says, sure, no problem. We get it. Mm. So you fix everything down. Completely transparent decision-making process. And you move on. Perfectly fine, and in a meta analysis, I would say it's impossible to completely pre register it and know exactly what you're gonna do in advance. I don't think it will ever happen. Mm. Yeah, that's a no, yeah. you're, the- you're uh, preserving, preserving the effects of some shit that just turned up for really good ideas. And uh, 
the history of science as a formal enterprise, shit that just turned up one day has got a really amazing hit rate for things that actually went right. And you, you, you can't, you, the sort of uh, luck, serendipity, happy accidents, whatever the hell you want to call it, and however it's particularly, throwing out the opportunity for that to happen because it's not in the plan, one must not deviate from the plan, <laughs> is not the idea. And I've, but I've seen people explicitly make that criticism. Well, what am I supposed to do if my capricious interesting data is capricious and interesting? Well, fucking think, say so, probably. Um, but really, in, that, in the case maybe. of a meta-analysis, if you would do those and pre-register them, I think this criticism on single study also disappears. Because here you see that it is impossible to think of everything in advance. Because maybe you've not read the entire literature, right? You just don't know what will turn out and something will turn out. So if you, if you take that approach and you see, okay, so basically pre-registration becomes a very very detailed process of writing down what you thought before you start, encountering something, documenting it very nicely, and then saying, we now have this understanding, now we're moving forward in this. So it's an extremely transparent process where, well, you try to minimize bias. That's the goal, right? Every step of the way, you try to minimize bias. And if you, you know, then you think about single studies. Well, okay, we can also do that there, right? You you lose this criticism of I cannot explore, I'm you know, I'm fixed in doing it one way and I cannot deviate. That's, that's not how things work, but it's more a transparent decision process, which especially for yeah. meta-analysis is ex extremely important because exactly what Dan said earlier, like, oh, let's change my inclusion criteria because it really suits me for some reason. Yeah, that's not what you want. That's not a good reason to document. Like, okay, I just excluded these studies because they were messing up with my hypothesis. So. Yeah, yeah we, had, we had a bit of a laugh before at the neuroscientists and how, how, how they were approaching things. But I think now they've actually really cleaned house. And um, quite a lot of methods within neuroscience, um, people are actually doing these mega analyses where they're, where, they're, where they're combining all the raw data together. So you're not just getting these, um, um, these statistics of what people found in papers, but you're actually getting entire team maps and people are combining yeah. that. Um, it's happening in neuroscience. It's happening in genetics. Yeah, and, it's um, normal. It, it's, it's normal. Like there's some places where they just aggregate data. They just build databases. Yes, it's, mm. it's yeah. That, that's, it's it's becoming a, a research technique in its own right. It's what well, it's it's a saves an awful lot of money. Um, we yeah. we all need to go out and get all our own shit. No, you don't. The the fact that it doesn't happen more in um, biological psych and electrocard is embarrassing. Because the data is really easy to get and it's really easy to share. So why aren't there big piles of it? Because oh, a lot of people who do the research are awful. Uh, let's take a quick break. I think it's, I think it's so, changing now. Oh, hang on, Dan. I need to take a quick break. I need to go out into the oh, corridor and punch strangers. Let's take a break then. Yes, we will. back to everything hurts if you don't already follow us on twitter you should we are at hurts podcast and we're also on facebook just search everything hurts podcast like us follow us we put uh updates our episodes and also all our show links as well so you can follow all the stuff that we're talking about today we are speaking with daniel larkins and we are talking about 
meta analysis. You can follow Daniel on Twitter as well. He is at Larkins, and uh, Daniel also has a fantastic blog, The 20% Statistician. You can find that at daniellarkins.blogspot. And we're uh, now joined by James's cat once again. The everything hurts. The everything hurts mascot. Uh, so we've, we've really been the mascot. Daniel's not had a, a lot of the time because he, he sleeps right next to me. I like to pick him up and make him do stuff. So when Dan's being serious, he forgets what he's doing. <laughs> it works half the time. About it works. A, it works a lot of the time. Um, silly face is more effective. But um, look, don't let me distract you from this uh, professional and straightforward enterprise, Daniel. What were you going to say? Well, we've been talking uh, we've been talking meta analysis with uh, with Daniel Larkins, and um, one thing that we're, we're speaking about is this idea of actually collecting uh, what people have been doing in neuroscience and genetics is collecting a lot of these raw, raw data sets to do mega analysis, and uh, there seems to be quite a bit of reluctance, at least within the psychological sciences, about this. Um, it's a bit strange because I've actually found that um, people are quite open to doing this kind of stuff. When you actually ask them, hey, uh, I've got a few questions um, about this for a meta-analysis. Um, can you send me some information? Uh, the majority of people are actually quite good. Um, and we did a recent meta-analysis which actually included some animal research. And these, these, these people are fantastic. We're like, hey, we know it's probably impossible because you did this research 20 years ago, but is there any chance you have the data? And uh, an hour later, sure, here's the Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> that's incredible. Nice. So some people are actually yeah, fantastic. Great. But then within, within yeah. psychology, it's kind of like, hey, you're, you're going to be included and you have a right to have a say, um, but um, people seem to be reluctant. How do you think we can actually get around this, Daniel? Or how do you see this, um, this all playing out? Yeah, it's a good question, but I think there there are two ways to go about it. And one is hoping that people will come to the insight that it will benefit science uh, as a collective if we all just publish our data with everything we do, and that's it. So that would be great if people come to this insight that this is actually what we want for science in general, and everybody shares their data whenever it's possible, right? Whenever it's possible. But I definitely think it should we should turn this into a default that for every paper that you publish, unless you can come up with a good reason why you shouldn't, the data is just part of the paper. We're living in uh, the digital age; it can't be that difficult. So, so one way is just to hope that people come to this insight, uh, and. I'm not sure, but I don't think that's going to happen. So then the other side is saying, well, you know, then we have to create some regulations around this. This is sort of like the the light bulb, right? We had light bulbs. They were really cheap and easy, and people kept buying them. They should buy the more expensive, energy-efficient light bulbs. It's more efficient for them. It's more efficient for the world, right? Better for the environment. But people didn't. Mm-hmm. So then governments get together and say, okay, we're going to, Make this a rule. Now everybody has to do this. And I think that's what's going to happen. So you see grant funders require that tax-funded research must be shared. The data must be shared. And the European Union is looking at programs to do this. Dutch science funders doing this more and more all over the world. I think that's going to be the way, regrettably. Well, the the floodgates for that are open now because... uh, Welcome have got some open science requirements. Uh, Gates Foundation now do as well. Um, and these are this is not sort of they're not they're no drop in the bucket kind of uh, kind of enterprises. That's you know hundreds of millions of dollars over God knows how long. 
But uh, yeah, you've got you 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 get the money in the first instance. You've got conditions of publication. Full stop. End of story. You already have conditions in grants. Send an update after six months. Make sure X Y Z is happening. Are you sticking to your plan? If X Y Z goes wrong, you need to send me A B C and so on. These are more conditions that are how they feel their money should be used. So they are a hundred percent entitled to make. What, whatever the hell conditions they want. You, maybe, maybe you need to wear purple hats while you do the research. It's their fucking cash. So at the end of at I, the I, point, I think, I think they the want maximum the, value out the of their own money. Funders, yeah, and the, the reason that funders are pushing this is that they don't have an, an agenda, right? They, they only have the, the taxpayer's interest at mind. Uh, but we have our own time and uh, stuff like that in, in mind when we say, mm, uh, I'd rather not, because it's more work, right? Mm. It's more work in the short run. But I think people completely miss the point how much more efficient they can become if data materials are shared by default. I don't, now I'm spending so much time creating materials or creating programs. If I could just download everything from the articles that I want to build on. That would save so much time. If I can look into data and think, oh, wait, what's actually the standard deviation of an effect like this or whatever, you know, those kind of properties that will make a lot of what I do a lot more efficient. I'm not talking about, you know, the data parasites that go in and get your data and, you know, publish papers on your stuff. Sure, that will happen. You'll do it about other data that someone else has shared in 10 or 20 years. It's going to be, become the default. But this is more tiny things that just make your own research more efficient, like you're saving money when you buy a energy-efficient light bulb, right, in the long run. But people don't see it, but it will happen. It will happen. Yeah. Well, people who are generating, who are paying for data are wanting to acquire the full value of what they're essentially investing in. What they're in- investing in is, is capital, uh, intellectual capital they yeah. want it to be better so it's a it's probably a pretty easy sell for them and uh, no one's going to say no to the money if they have to give their data away uh, other issue here as well is yeah. that you're also being so think- a uh uh, it's also just good for yourself. The amount of times that I'm thinking, oh, gee, I want to have a look at that data set again, and there's, or I want to have a look at that script. I actually go back to the script I put on GitHub with the paper because I know, well, th- th- this is the canonical, I know that this thing works, so I can go back and actually use that. And it also just makes me double-check my data again because if this is going to be public with my script and also and also my, my, my data set, I just want to make sure that it's... Uh, that it's absolutely uh, that, that that it works well. Um, so it's just uh, people kind of think that oh, it's all about other people using it, but it's also just about yourself as well, and actually having yeah. good uh, good practices for your own research. Mm. And I, I recently put a preprint online, and then some nosy PhD student figured out that I made an error somewhere in the frequency calculations. wasn't huge, but it was wrong. And uh, she pointed it out on Twitter, and I'm like, well, thank you so much because you know that's great. Uh, so people are just uh, able to check your work and they can uh, improve it. That's just perfect. But I think this this is all tiny. I think we need to think much bigger than this. We're just we're too limited by the past. But look at the future. Think about perfectly organized, accessible, huge amounts of data. Look, think think about having everything that was available in the last fifty years. All the research, all the materials. Just imagine. There's a database, you can go in, you can get whatever you want. Well, if we can do that in 50 years, that's going to be so awesome for science. We can do so much cool things. 
right? If we would have that level of organization. It's not easy. It will be a challenge to organize all this data. But making it available like that is going to be amazing. Well, I'm actually quite encouraged by how things are going, um, particularly with these grant funding organizations. I know locally the Norwegian Research Council is also saying, hey, like this is going to become a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to have to share. We're, gonna, we're not sure how to implement it exactly because we're, we're working through a few issues, but be ready because this is, this is going to happen. And um, as soon as all these agencies start doing it, um, then uh, you know things are going to change. And hopefully, like the, the 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 picture that you painted would be fantastic if we actually had access to all this data. We, we would, you know, what are we doing this for? Like mm. we, we would just get to our goals so much quicker if we had all this uh, all this data available. Yeah, yeah, I think it will make a real big difference in practice. It's going to be. Uh... I mean, you know, there are things that are just going to change the way that you work. I think this is really going to be one of them in the long term. I really think so. It's like the internet, you know, that you think, wait, I have to go to the library, get a book, and it takes four days. And all of a sudden, everything is just, boom, there, at your fingertips. If you have huge amounts of data, there will be something like that. It's making a big difference as well. I know uh, there's a data set that my colleagues are working with. It's... um it's from Pittsburgh, and they collected brain imaging and health data from 2,000 kids from two years to, to 30 years. And the type, of, the, type of, the type of information they're getting is incredible. But this would only be available. This is only actually happening because this data is completely open. You have things like the Allen, the Allen Brain Database, where they've done, um, uh, they're looking at the expression of mRNA across like 600 regions of the brain. Only, mm. And you have so many researchers actually looking at this and looking at these questions. Um, you just get so much more done when you actually have all this stuff open. Um, and it's just, it's, it's just going to completely change the way we're doing science. Uh, last week, I was at this workshop about reproducibility, and it included making making data open discussion about that. And I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think there's something called open fMRI data, maybe openfmri.com or something. Don't pin me down on the exact thing, but it's not my field, but this exists. And uh, so you can go in there, and there's just a huge amount of fMRI data there. And uh, they said that it had already saved in terms of you know, collecting this these scans by other people, they could now just go in and grab what they needed. It had already saved millions of dollars in scan costs, just sharing this yeah. stuff among each other. Three, and that's just a tiny beginning. Huh? That was the figure I saw, three million pounds. Three million pounds by just sharing your... I mean, which, which yeah. tax funder is going to say, hey, that's not a good idea. Of course, that's great. That's exactly what you want, more value for money from uh, the tax investment in science. So, I mean, if, yeah. that's, if that's what it does, it's going to happen, right? This is a one-way street. I mean, everybody is slowly moving towards this. It's not like it's going to go back and just in 20 years or 30 years. You can see that this has almost has to happen, right? It would be crazy mm. if it didn't. Yeah, I think just the, the, yeah, the... you've got to you've got to formalize and structure openness rather than having it all just be in sort of open. Yeah, yeah. So the structure um, is going to be a big challenge because then you can do the real, real interesting meta analysis. You can really go in and really grab all this data. So that's what you want. And now, if we will look back to what we've been doing in the last couple of years or maybe decades even in terms of meta-analysis and be like, oh yeah, remember how it was. You know, it was biased, it was a huge amount of work and then the end mm, result was yeah. not even H- hopefully that'll be the case. even though people thought it was crazy informative. Remember mm. that, ha ha ha. We're just gonna, we're just gonna see it in 30 years <laughs> or something. We'll look back to this and be like, oh yeah, oh yeah, I remember. <laughs> yeah, they'll be, they'll be their own bad old days, huh? Let, look, let me ask both of you uh, a question. This is something that I've wondered about for a while. 
there are people who are fairly opposed to openness uh, in a lot of different formats of scientific endeavor. I wonder if any of them are secretly afraid that they don't know what they're doing. I mean, I don't know what I'm doing. That's not something to be afraid of. That's just uh, pretty realistic, I would say. I mean, don't you think that, that you know, I, I used to think that there were people who knew what they were doing. And then, uh, you know, when you go to uh, uh, elementary school and then uh, high school and then university, you think these this is where the people are who know what they're doing. And now I'm a staff member in the university and really there's not much else. I'm talking to everybody who's, you know, no, nobody knows what we're doing. So, you know. That's given, I would say. All right. So, you, let me let me rephrase. Do you, do you think there's a population of people who are afraid of not being seen as experts if they have to open their procedures? Well, the the thing here is that there's a social dilemma, and that's why where psychologists can come in and actually tell you something about stuff they know. Right? This is a social dilemma. So, for the individual, <laughs> could happen to a nicer bunch of people. Go on. <laughs> Now for for an individual, there's not a lot to gain here, right? I mean, the, the major risk is that somebody's going to look at my da- data and say, hey, you messed up, and it has already happened. There's already been a paper. Their data was shared. Great, right? In a journal called Psychological Science. It's a very high-impact journal. They got a publication there. They shared the, da- the, the data with the publication, which is great. And then people actually looked at it and said, hey, wait, your main point is invalid because of this and then these people had to retract the paper it's now retracted so you know that's good they did something great shared the data along with their publication and what did they get then yeah a retracted paper whereas if they didn't share the data they would probably still have this paper so that's that's the risk the individual risk it's huge and how is it going to weigh up to the collective benefit yeah it's great. Science is going to be more efficient and we save the taxpayer three million pounds. That's not good for me. I got this retracted paper. So there's a huge imbalance between these things. So that's also why you really need to yeah, get regulations in place because the individual risks yeah. are too high. Uh, but I think we need to be... Yeah. So the people... so look, there's, not to say there aren't any individual benefits. Look, if you If you do what I do a lot of the time, you spend a lot of time thinking about signals especially... Um, how you, I would, there is a conceivable future where I don't need anywhere near as much money or infrastructure to do the same kind of work. So if you, of all you, all you really have in this case, and there's an awful lot of people who say this, I've heard, had this conversation with a couple of people who said, I am a methodologist. I could get by on less Actually, I could have a smaller research group. I could get the same amount done and mm-hmm. actually have less stuff. But the way the yeah. system is set up right now, I'm not allowed to do that because that means I'm not doing my job. A, my university will yell at me, and B, it is actually an impediment to my career at this point not to go out and get lots of money and then to have my own program and put my name on it with big letters yeah. right on the top. Yeah, yeah. So it's not in your interest to save money. <laughs> That's no, a little bit it's depressing. Not. Yeah, no, you're right. You're completely right. It's in your interest to get all this money and spend it. And if you're going to say, "Hey, look, actually, if we do it like this, we're all going to save a lot of money." Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a that's that's really the, the definition of a social dilemma right there. 
So, uh, but I think that you know funders are seeing this. A lot of people are pointing out these things. There are people who say that you know it's more important to reward individuals for uh, sharing data and open science practices, maybe than for grants. There's a very nice paper by Ionidas, I think, where he makes this point that actually getting a grant is uh, should weigh heavily uh, negatively in your tenure track, uh, and then it should be compensated by things like well, creating a lot of data and sharing it, or uh, yeah, maybe a paper that you publish. But just getting money itself should be a negative thing unless you compensate it with actually some useful output. I think that's a very creative way to think about it. And of course, he sees this social dilemma and tries to fix it in some way. I'm not sure if Mm. this is the way, but it's good to think about how to fix this. I think the inclusion of these badges as well, so you can quickly identify papers which do open practices, and uh, and now some people are uh, specifically um, hiring people, and they give um, uh, more favour to people who actually have done this in the past. So I think there's there's That's definitely true. a shift happening. It's very slow. No, but, but I think more more than you think as well. So I'm for example in a grant committee, the Flemish grant committee, and uh, we'll have a meeting next week. And we'll hand out the grants. And I already can see in the applications that people, you know, if the, if it's equal, if there are two excellent proposals and one person is doing clearly intrinsically motivated open science behavior, it's not going to hurt your chances of getting it when sure. it's equal, right? So I think there's there's more happening behind the screens than you'll see. You never hear like, oh, yeah, you, you actually won out on this person because it was so clear that you shared their data in the past and you did these things. But I think it already influences things yeah 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 look it's just um but because i've had a sorry go on yeah yeah, maybe maybe i mean so you're saying people are against sharing their their data you know i i can understand but who can be against cumulative science and and how are we ever going to get a real cumulative (laughs) science without open open data i think it's not going to happen so you know it's kind of weird to be against open data because yeah. I think it's just a ch- changing of mindsets and more, more people are used to. And I think that fear of what happens if someone finds out yeah. um, I made a mistake. Mm. Uh, I, I don't think anyone. I don't think there's anyone who's scared of what if they find out I fudged the data. It's a case of what if I made a genuine mistake. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. But uh, it's, uh, also there, I've seen people uh, recommend that if you figure out that you've made a mistake and you retract the article, it should weigh positively in tenure decisions. Because, you know, not if you messed up, of course. If you messed up, I mean, if you committed fraud and you had to retract. No, no, an honest, honest to God mistake. And they happen. We are not machines. We will make mistakes. It will happen. I will make the next 10 years in my career. I'm going to make a huge mistake somewhere. You know, it must happen. So the moment it happens, the question, the question is not will it happen. The question is how do you respond when it has happened? And then if you retract your paper, good for you. That's that's exactly what yeah. we want. So you know, so yeah, you you publish your data, excellent. An error was found by someone else and you didn't realize it. Hey, shit happens. You retracted your paper, excellent. Right? That's how it should be. Hmm. Although, or you know, if you if you're doing if you're doing proper diligence and you you find out before you actually file the bloody thing because you're uh, sure you got sure. the right kind of practices i mean yeah. I, I i triple check everything now i put everything online it's definitely only the action itself has a you know uh, increases the we, we have our own biases though and I, I think a lot happens in the business world is when they're implementing a new idea they have what they call a red team where they have someone coming in who's completely separate from what you're doing 
go through and specifically try and find errors in your plan and what you're doing. I think there's definitely a space within within science of actually having, it's almost like an agreement system where you kind of go, hey, I'll red team your article if in the future you red team mine. Go through it, pull it apart, you know, stat check, grim, sprite, everything. Just go through and find problems, statistically speaking, not, not about like the methods or whatever. Um, and then that is going to do a lot because we have our own biases and we have, we, have, we have our own blind spots and we completely miss stuff. Even if you have 20 co-authors on your paper, you've all got this sort of singular way, this is how it is. So I think there's definitely a space for having that to, to find these errors before you actually, because people make mistakes and they're genuine mistakes. Yeah, that sounds like a great, uh, great idea, actually. If you can organize that within a group or some people collaborating, trying to, trying to break everything apart before you move on and collect data or even after you published it. it sounds like a very useful exercise hmm. yeah really I'll, I'll, I'll red team your stuff for nothing dan oh i already uh, red team your stuff <laughs> james just, just just send it just send it over and i'll, I'll, get, <laughs> I'll put some red on it for you yeah i think big, we'll find some people marker. who are strongly intrinsically motivated to do this kind of work <laughs> it will be a new job for people they go crazy on it <laughs> that will go nuts <laughs> well we're gonna um wrap up for today but before we do that we just want to ask you a few uh, a few questions daniel just um, oh shit we forgot the questions yes do yes the questions. We're, we're gonna go through that um few quick fire things um doesn't necessarily have to be a quick fire response but um we'll, we'll see where it takes us okay first thing if you could show uh one slide at the first lecture of every introductory psychology course worldwide what would it say all right. So, so I actually teach introduction to psychology. So, so I can um, I can pick a slide from uh, from the lecture that I teach. Then I think one of the things I, th- I I think are interesting to point out is that psychology is really difficult, really hard to do. And I work at a technical university, so I get a lot of students who study maybe physics or things like that, and they drop by and they think, let's study psychology. And I have in one of my slides I have the billiard ball example in in physics. If you want to predict the trajectory of a billiard ball, you know, it hits one thing, it hits a second thing. After the ninth impact, there's a mathematician, Barry, who calculated this. After the ninth impact, if you still want to predict where the ball goes, you have to take into account the gravity of the person standing next to the (laughs) billiard table. So, you know, you can do it, but we call it a game. And then I say, well, let's try to think of how happy you are at this moment. Right? I mean, I don't know if, where you're going to go when you're dead, but, uh, you know, probably nowhere, so it's over. So being happy is important. Can you think of nine things that influence how happy you are at this moment? Yeah, yeah, you probably can, right? It's a very difficult thing. And then add to that some free will, which this billiard ball doesn't have, but you have, which sucks as a scientist. It's a crappy thing, free will. It's really difficult. So it's extremely challenging, but it's also at the same time, I think, an incredibly important topic to study. So I think that's the the main thing if you talk about psychology that I would hope people understand. It's a hard mm. science. It's it's, yes. it's not the uh, the the, the blow subject. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Next question. Uh, what have you changed your mind about in the last few years? Something that you've changed your mind about? Yeah. So I think this is my did... favorite question. Yeah. <laughs> well, something yeah. that we 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 just talked about earlier. I think that there's somebody who has a clue about what they're doing. I really think that, you know, I really thought that when I went into science, there would be people somewhere who really knew what they were doing about every choice they made and everything. And it's just not true. 
It's just how it works. People try, they try their best, but there's so many things we're pretty clueless about and uh, we just muddle on. We try, we try our best, but there's really no one out there who is really as clueful as as I thought when uh, I just started out a couple of years ago uh, being a staff member. Yeah. I think it's How fine. How old are you? I think it's fine, but it's just 36, James. How old are you? Never ask a lady your age. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 35. All right. So same. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and we'll jump on to the last question. Um, what is uh, one book or paper that you would recommend that everyone should read? All right, so I think um, a nice general book that I uh, wished uh, wish I had read much earlier in my career is uh, Understanding Psychology as a Science. Uh, it's by Zoltan Dines, and uh, it's a great book. It goes from philosophy of science straight up to statistics. It uh, discusses all the major approaches, not how to do a test, but why you want to do a test, and all these different perspectives, frequentist, Bayesian, likelihood. Um, yeah, it's a great book, very accessible and extremely educational and something that's not taught enough in our curricula. So you have to uh, read up on it yourself. And this is definitely the book to, to order. If you haven't read it, go out, order it. It will uh, be worth your while. Yeah, I've seen a lot of people rave about that book, actually. Yeah. No, no, it's true. And it's worth yeah. it. Uh, yeah. And uh, it's it's really huh. educational. And uh, I have to say that the, the, the author, Sultan Dinas, so actually in my... In my Coursera course, I have a short interview with uh, Sultan about his book. I was already a big fan, and I met him at a conference, and then we had a chat about the book. It's also a great background story. I think his mother was a member of the Scientology Church, so he really got into popper and figuring out what science was uh, supposed to be about. And, uh, yeah, and uh, you can you can feel it in this book. It's a very, uh, yeah, great great book, great author. Go going buy it if you haven't read it. Excellent. We'll, we'll put a link to that book online then. Well, thanks yeah. for, for joining us for, for this episode on meta-analysis, Daniel. We'll, we'll definitely have to have, to have to have you come back as well for some, uh, for some future episodes. Yeah, but, do, something, uh, do something really controversial and hurt someone's feelings and then we can, uh, we can read it all out to you. It'll be, a, it'll be, it'll be fun. <laughs> something, something, something like that would be good. I feel like we don't, enough, we don't see enough blood in the water on this podcast. Everyone's too, too amenable for my taste. <laughs> well maybe next time maybe next time but this is this is it yeah. we're gonna have to do it with this yeah no i think i thought that was i thought that was excellent this is like one of our, our one of our goals with having guests is to have guests expound as much stuff as humanly possible that's why people are listening mm. they're not here to to hear us tell tell you our opinions on stuff <laughs> all right yeah i don't know i, I feel i talked quite a lot but uh, i hope that's it's okay. perfect that's exactly if you feel that's like you talked want. slightly too much you've been a perfect guest <laughs> well no seriously that's, that's the metric Good. All right, all right. No, but this is We've great fun. It. It's really, really, uh, you know, the thing with this podcast, If so I've, I've been listening to you guys for the last uh, two or three weeks continuously, and uh, it feels like, you know, I could never... I could never join in. <laughs> Although sometimes <laughs> I'm like, you know, I think everything was pretty good. Everything was good. There was the there was an episode about effect size where I really was like, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. I want to say something, but it's not possible. <laughs> so it's great to uh, have the opportunity to 
to uh, to chat. I mean, again, really, really, I think this podcast, it's uh, one of my favorite things on the internet right now. I'm really happy that you're doing this. So I'm um, happy that cool. I we'll can contribute keep, we'll and spread the word. We'll have to keep doing it then. Yeah. yeah. No, no, we're, very, we're, very happy, we're very happy that you came on. Yeah, yeah, um, great. No, no, no pressure, Dan. Now we've got to keep doing it because everyone likes it. See <laughs> what, what you've gotten us into? Yeah, well, yeah. we're gonna we're gonna hit. Uh, we're approaching episode fifty, um, mm. so we'll just have to have to oh. see where it goes. And there's we'll there's, there's more. To. What are we gonna do for fifty? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. So, have, do you listen to other podcasts? Do you listen to um, Very Bad Wizards, for example? I, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Very Bad Wizards. Yeah, I think what they did did maybe for a hundredth. I don't know. They're going so far, but I think they had like tiny interviews with a lot of people. They really liked or something you know or people who influenced them i would do something like that make it a little bit personal but not too personal so find some people that you really like and uh, or influenced you or something like that and you know i don't know make it a little bit about uh, the people who inspired you for example that would be nice something well, that's like not that a bad idea, actually oh that's a nice idea Maybe too if positive. If anyone's got any ideas that are less nice than that, we get to set something on fire. <laughs> All right, the alternative is the alternative is find find fifty people who are really annoyed by you and let them just give them the two minute slots. Give them two, the minute, two minutes. The two minutes hate. Fifty times two minutes about ah. you guys. That's the alternative. Pick and choose. <laughs> think, think. <laughs> That's good. I think that would amuse both of us maximally. Uh, would you Would you say having a thick skin is pretty important in this business? Oh, you need it. It's, yes. Oh. Uh, yes. If you put yourself out there, you know, but the thing is, uh, so many people don't exactly because they're just too scared. So, so many people just don't say things or put themselves out there in any way. They just try to. Yeah, it's not my style. It's not your style, clearly, but uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, if, I'm if shy not... and reticent. You take that back or I'll fly over and scalp you. <laughs> no, but if it's not, I mean, uh, if, if you want to, you know, and, and this comes from some sort of... Um, you know, passion about what you want to do and then you put yourself out there. Then you have to have a thick skin. That's crazy, right? So you're very passionate about doing good science and yeah, you that means apparently that you have to have a little bit of you have thick to, You skin. have to be prepared for some people tell you that you're wrong because you're not oh, going to yeah. improve otherwise. Yeah, yeah. 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 And it's just, look, a lot of the time, sometimes even a significant proportion of the time, you can be as sincere as you like about any given thing. You will just come across the wrong way to people. There will I mean, be some combination of on, things on the internet. That will honestly, just not I think you know happen. Having having an eighty percent, uh, you know, eighty percent of people who like what you do, I think on the internet, that's that's about the maximum that's physically that's, possible. You're, you're not going to be able to get better than that. <laughs> no, no. I mean, you know, I thought maybe you know ninety five. You know, no way. No eighty. That's nah. that's a very good <laughs> good upper level. Eighty percent of people like the stuff you do. Then you're doing a great yeah. job. But a hundred percent of people love your hair. <laughs> let's uh let's let's wrap it up there thank right. you for listening we'll be back soon cheers kids